Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are talking about the Gospels. This is Gospels part 121. Last week we saw where Jesus wrapped up washing his disciples' feet and then continuing within this Passover Seder that is happening before all the events take place concerning his betrayal and arrest and death and resurrection and... um. At some point during this Seder, the text in John says that Jesus becomes troubled in spirit and he announces or declares, states that somebody is going to betray him. And then you have this interaction between Peter and John trying to figure out who Jesus is referencing. And it (laughs) seems very explicit that Jesus is dipping the morsel of bread and giving it to the person who is going to betray him, and that's Judas. And then the text says that Satan entered into him, uh, and then Jesus, I don't know whether he's speaking to Judas directly or to (laughs) Satan. He's like, what you're going to do, do it quickly. And then Judas gets up and leaves. Uh, He doesn't even continue to finish the Passover Seder with his disciples, he leaves to go carry out this series of events that's going to lead to Jesus' arrest. Yeah. And we moved on from there where Jesus took bread, he'd given thanks, and he broke it, and he he said, this is my body, which is given for you, and he said, do this in remembrance of me. And we had an interesting conversation where Jesus was inferring to his disciples that not only should the Passover Seder represent and be remembered for the exodus out of Egypt, the liberation from Egyptian slavery and oppression, but it also should represent all of the imagery concerning the Messiah's suffering and death and resurrection for the redemption of humanity. Yeah. Uh, and he he's not saying adding commandments to the Torah concerning Passover. He's not saying remove them. He's just saying your the richness, the complexity, the detail of Passover is so much more rich now that you have two images to glean from, not just one. Yeah, it's very, very interesting stuff. And we kind of left people hanging. I mean, at least as far as, you know, it, it's so common, I think, for us today in the church to look at these particular verses as uh, like an example of what we would call communion, whatever name you use for it. And so in in that sense, we left everybody hanging. They'd had their bread, but haven't had their cup yet. So (laughs) that's where we're going to pick up. We are looking at Matthew chapter 26, verses 27 to 29, Mark chapter 14, verses 23 to 25, and Luke chapter 22, verse 20. We're going to go ahead and read from Matthew. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, 
For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Okay. Now, again, this is, I I imagine, what most of us associate in our mind with the other half of communion. But now, to place it in its context, this is now the third of the four cups of the Seder. Well, how do we know that? Well, it appears that it happens after the meal. And we get this, actually, from Paul, who wasn't even there. But in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five, he mentions that it's after the meal. So we'll just kind of take his word for it. Certainly fits well with the text. No, no issues there. And just to kind of continue uh, adding a little bit of the, the information about what's going on, this cup is also accompanied by a blessing and... They also do the grace after meals, the grace after the meal. So I would bet there's a lot of people who listen to the podcast who've experienced something maybe in their home growing up or in a friend's home or something where people would sit down to eat and they would say grace or a prayer or the blessing or whatever it was called before the meal. And certainly it's common Jewish culture as well, but they also do the grace after the meal. So that's what they're doing here. And just like the last section with the bread, Jesus, you know, he's continuing to add symbolism to the existing Passover festival. Uh, It no longer only represents the redemption and the exodus from Egypt, but also the exodus from death and corruption as well, the redemption from death and corruption as well. It no longer represents the nation being brought to God's presence in the past, back during the exodus from Egypt, but also being brought to God's presence in the future. There's something new and different about that. And most especially, it would represent the the blood of the covenant. What What was the point of the exodus? God brought them out into the desert. And, you know, for all practical purposes, it was like a a wedding ceremony there, but there was a covenant. There was blood of the covenant. And it also represents now this new covenant. And just to, first, we'll take you back in time. So Samuel, let's go, take a look at Exodus chapter 24, verse 8. Why don't you read that for us so we can kind of hear the language around blood of the covenant. So Moses took the blood and splashed it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So uh, there you go. Uh, Back, you know, the thing that they're already celebrating or remembering or whatever in this Passover Seder, it it ultimately culminates in this blood of the covenant at Sinai, that sort of thing. Now, interesting note, Sorry, this is, this is talking about uh, the blood of the covenant, but notice that it says in all three of the Gospels, it uses the phrase poured out, the blood which is poured out. Now, this is an idiom for martyrdom. When someone's blood is poured out, they are a martyr. Now, 
you know that Samuel, all along, we've been talking about whenever we talk about Jesus going to the cross and all those kind of things. What is the metaphor that we use, like most commonly? Uh, it's a sacrifice. Yeah, sacrifice. But here, they're very specifically laying it out. Now, I don't know. You may take this part literally. You may take it as another metaphor, or whatever. But here, they're very specifically pointing to it as martyrdom. The, the, the writers want us to see Jesus in this particular point as a martyr. And so the blood, this is what's interesting. When Moses, you just read about Moses, whose blood was he splashing on the people? Um, was it the blood of bulls and goats? Well, yeah, it, let's just say it's the blood of some animal. Right, it, it wasn't Moses's blood. It wasn't mm-hmm. God's blood. It was right, but here, this new covenant, the blood of the covenant maker, Jesus's own blood, is the blood that seals the covenant. That is a big difference and an awesome difference. And so, just continuing a little bit about this covenant, we, we've already said it's a new covenant. What does that even mean? First of all, this is really important. If you read through your Old Testament, which is, you know, where you see all the talk about covenants and everything, you're going to notice something that's really, really important. We shouldn't think of a new covenant as a replacement. Covenants, as we see them in the Bible, and as we understood them culturally back in this day, you know, first century and, and prior— Covenants don't work like that. They're, they're additive. And so, just real quick example, Samuel. Let's, let's say you got a small boy, and at his house and his family, uh, they're going to give him an allowance. And so, let's say the parents make a, you know, kind of an agreement with this boy. We're going to call that a covenant. Let's say that he has to, I don't know, something ordinary. He has to take out the trash, and he has to clean his own room. And for doing that, they're going to give him a dollar each week. Now, you may think that's not very much money, but hello, these are things he's supposed to be doing anyway, just as a good citizen in the family, right? But here's the thing. The boy grows a little bit older. He wants a little bit more. And so the parents come up with a new idea. They say, you know what? We're going to give you something really important to do. We want you to weed the garden. Now, this is temporary. It's only going to last over the summer, but... If you will go out there each day and weed the garden, well, we're going to give you $10 a week because this is big, hard, important work. Now, here's what's important, though. If he goes out and he weeds the garden, but he stops taking out the trash and he stops cleaning his room, are the parents going to give him $9? or zero dollars. They're going to give him zero. Because the new covenant, if you want to think of the the weeding the garden as like a new covenant, covenant number two, isn't separate and distinct, and it isn't replacing the first one. It's, It's in addition to. So he needs to take out the trash and clean his room and weed the garden, and if he does those things, he gets $10. So you you sort of get the image. Uh, No analogy is perfect, but you get the idea. So why am I telling you this weird story about some, you know, theoretical boy? Well, 
A new covenant, again, is additive. And another uh, aspect we may recognize about it is that it may, in fact, make certain portions of an earlier covenant obsolete. That can happen, but it just is not wholesale replacement. It's important that we see that. Let's move ahead a little bit. I had you read from Exodus before. Now let's go to Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33. And it isn't the whole thing. I kind of snipped out a couple parts, Samuel. Why don't you read that? Indeed, a time is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts and minds. I will be their God and they will be my people. Yeah. Now, some really important things. We'll just do this really quickly. Uh, First of all, Samuel, where would you find this exact same text in the New Testament? You remember? Uh, Is it in Jeremiah? Oh, no, that's the Old Testament. That's what you were reading. Oh, What about the New Testament? Oh, um, is that Hebrews? Yeah. Yeah, I always have to go look because I have a terrible memory for where things are. But yeah, it was Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 through 12. And Samuel... Who's he making the new covenant with in the text? Israel and Judah. Yeah, the people of Israel and Judah. And I know everybody wants to grab a hold and go, oh, we're part of the new covenant. And I'm, I would say, well, yeah, you are, but just understand who the covenant was made with. That's why it's so important that you are grafted into Israel. And then notice, uh, especially when you're reading in Hebrews, it says, I will put my law... Uh, that's in Greek. If you go back to Jeremiah, it's in the Hebrew. What is the Hebrew word underneath the word law, Samuel? Torah. Yeah, I will put my Torah within them and write it on their hearts and minds. What? It's great. I will be their God. They will be my people. Now, what's funny about that, that is the new covenant, and it isn't replacing, it's additive, to all of the covenants that have come before. But look at what it does. The Torah is going to be written on their minds and hearts. So the Torah is literally bringing the terms and the conditions of an earlier covenant into this new covenant, except that it's going to now be, I don't know, existing in a new way. And the way we would talk about it now is we would say, well, look, because the kingdom and and the new covenant and everything hasn't come in its fullness yet, well, the Holy Spirit is working in us. He is writing the Torah on our minds and hearts. But there will be a time, and let's just say post-resurrection, when the Torah will be fully written on our mind and hearts. And that is just super awesome. Paul, before you move on, I have a... wrestling with part of your analogy with the the small boy and the <laughs> weekly allowance. Yeah, go for it. You you said that if he upholds covenant 2 where he is weeding the garden on a weekly basis but then he fails to take out the trash and clean the room that he is a, according to you he is awarded zero dollars <laughs> right now <laughs> am i a harsh why, parent <laughs> yeah yeah I, I just was wondering like can the concept of covenants being additive and not being replaced mean that if you are obedient with one covenant 
you will receive the blessing of what that covenant entails. But then if you fail to uphold a pre-existing covenant that still stands, it's simply you don't experience the blessings with that one. So in in this case, like, shouldn't the boy get awarded the $10 for continuing to be obedient with the weeds, but he just does not get a grand total of $11 per week? <laughs> That's very small boyish of you, Samuel. <laughs> wow. wow. Well, first of, first of all, there is no $11 here. There's only 10 He's getting an increase from 1 to 10 But uh, let, let's just say, by all means, let's not take me too seriously and too literally. It could, could it be that there is reward that, that is, in fact, earned and received from portions of the covenant and not other portions of the covenant, or whether it's the same covenant or separate covenants or all that? Well, sure. Of course. God is, he is so merciful. Of course, of course, of course. And then you also have comments like from Paul. Hey, if, if you're guilty of one part of the law, you're guilty of the whole law, you know, or things like that. There, there are many ways to look at this. So, again, please don't take that too literally. That, that's all I was trying to do is paint a picture where it's like, hey, now, wait a second. These two things go together. Just because you now have a new job of weeding the garden doesn't take away anything from that earlier agreement that you're supposed to be taking out the trash and cleaning your room. These things are additive. And then I added that part where, well, what if they gave you a new job that somehow made an earlier job obsolete? Oh, yeah, of course, those things happen. But again, what you, the, the point is to look at the covenants together as a whole rather than looking at them separately as if somehow earlier ones become obsolete, you don't care about them. And just think about it from this perspective, Samuel. We are very big about, hey, you can't just throw your Old Testament out. You, the, the whole thing matters. You can't look as if all of a sudden Jesus came and nothing in the Old Testament matters. It's still very important, especially for the Jewish people, but most certainly to a great, great, great degree for us as well. And so that's kind of the image that I was painting there. I may not have talked myself out of trouble with my little boy, but it, what do you think about all of that? Yeah, I, you reframe it to say that I guess my mind was treating them as distinct, whereas you just said uh, here a second ago that the $10 now encompasses both the what in, what was included in Covenant 1 plus the new details in Covenant 2. Right, um, yeah. So that makes sense. And I can imagine if I was the small boy, and I was negotiating with my parents <laughs> over the work that I had done and what money I was going to receive, buddy, I'd be looking at it the same way. I, there's no oh, doubt I'm just that. thinking, like, it, it takes more effort to weed a garden than it does to take the trash out and clean the room. So Exactly. I, I, uh, it would be very hard for me not to give some kind of reward for that effort that is more laborious than the the more trivial ones, if you want to call it that. 
Of course you would. And let's just say it out loud. How very godlike of you. Right? <laughs> of course you would. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. So having healed our relationship with this small lad, uh, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> uh, uh, well, you know, I just wanted to mention something. One of the things that people could also go back and look at in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. There's an interesting little bit there, and you don't have to limit it to that. Obviously, you can read all around. But that just, that we're not going to read it now, but that's a, a very appropriate, appropriate reference we could also look at from here. Uh, it, in verse 11, specifically, it mentions something about blood of the covenant, whatever, and that whole little section is, it seems to be about the promised Messiah King. So there's another little nugget you could go back and read about. But now, continuing, though, with the text here, we spoke earlier, uh, I think uh, we were back in, what was it, Luke chapter 22, verse 18, we said something about Jesus making a Nazarite vow, and and here, again, Jesus expects to drink wine with the resurrected disciples in the coming kingdom. Now, Again, we talked about this as, well, you know, there's supposed to be this big messianic banquet. Some think that is an actual Passover meal. Others think that we will continually have Passover meals uh, that will be separate from that messianic banquet, whatever. Whatever it looks like, Jesus is abstaining from wine from the moment they finish this meal until he returns, his second coming, as the actual king taking the throne. Uh, and, you know, the banquet and all that stuff that comes with it. So that that's just mentioning it again, that Nazarite vow. And then, boy, I wrestle so much with should I say this out loud or not or whatever, but we're trying to not shy away from big topics, things that are controversial or whatever. And sometimes we know if we take a stand in one way or another, whatever, that we could offend people. We're not meaning to. Please just take it this way. We just want to be very clear about how we see it. We're not trying to tear other people down. I mean, my goodness, five or 10 years from now, we might be looking back going, all along they were right, but whatever. (laughs) I just want to say this. From our perspective, from everything that we understand, and it isn't just, you know, some itty-bitty specific part of the text. It's the entire text, the way that we're trying to make it make sense. From our perspective, there is nothing in this text. Or we're even going to say the understanding of Jesus, the apostles, all of Judaism of the day, there was no understanding that suggests that we should be seeing this bread and wine, body and blood, to be actual blood or flesh. And this brings up the idea of transubstantiation or, you know, whatever, any similar thought. And if you think back, this might even remind you of some of our discussions around John chapter 6. By all means, Go back and listen to that one, because that was some tough work through there. (laughs) Remember that, Samuel? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so now, if you see it, you know, as actual blood and flesh, whatever, you know, okay, whatever, you do you, but for our part, and I know this is going to sound mean, I don't mean it that way, I just want to be clear, we're calling it a fantastical creation, and and we're even suggesting that it brings absolutely no benefit with it, and 
now to try to lighten the mood a little bit to, so you know we're not trying to be mean. Just, I just want to say this. If we were sitting around together watching Frozen, it might be at this moment that I might suggest that you let it go, let it go. <laughs> okay? That's all I'm saying. But I'm going to let it go right there. Oh, see what I did? <laughs> nice. I mean, I guess I'm going to be the one to bring it back on a serious note with this last statement. But um, You mean I didn't accomplish that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the God of Israel is totally not in the business of any sort of self-mortification of human flesh or human sacrifice that's very pagan and things that the surrounding nations of Israel were accustomed to. And the reason that he's not is because the text in Genesis 1 and 2 says it that humanity is the crowning jewel of God's created world. And he has implanted his image within humanity and so why would there be things within his text where he is asking humanity to wreck that masterpiece of creation that he has made and called very good? Um, I just wanted to point that out as, a, as another detail to support that it's not anything to do with drinking actual blood or eating of real flesh jesus wasn't suggesting that either yeah and just to say listen everybody that believes something let's just say it this way believes something different than what we do well they all have their proof texts and all of the reasoning behind it and i mean let's just say they think they're right and so just again being respectful it's like you know what i get it you think what you think, and, and go ahead. We just, we just can't go there. It doesn't work for us. It doesn't fit the story for us. But All right, well, let's go ahead. Uh, we're going to look. Boy, look at this. We're just doing Luke all by himself. This is Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 30. Kind of long. says this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. All right, so that, well, see, there was some good stuff, and then it kind of gets a little weird, whatever. Let's see what we got here, Samuel. So uh, just 
Again, get our head in the game. They've all gathered for this Passover Seder meal. We're in the synoptics. That's what we're talking about here. Now, it's, uh, he mentioned it, something Jesus has been longing for, his last one for a long, long time. Now, during the meal, Jesus washes their feet and gives you know instruction about how they are to be toward one another, we are to be toward one another. And, and they've also, during this meal, they've talked of betrayal. Judas has actually departed, left in the middle of the meal. Jesus expands the memorial of Passover to include what he's about to accomplish. And, and we even see, you know, we talked about like the seeds of what we would call modern communion or whatever name you put on it. Now, somehow, <laughs> in all of this, they end up in a discussion, in fact, more than a discussion, it turns into a dispute about which of them is the greatest. To which I say, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> did, did you have too much wine? I mean, what's even going on in your head? That's crazy, right? It's one of those, well, I'd never do that kind of moments to which we always say, yeah, I hear you, but don't be too quick to judge because you know what? Humans be human all the time. Now, also, and let's just note how honest were the writers of the Gospels about themselves? To be fair, okay, this is in Luke. Luke wasn't actually one of the apostles. But you know, he got the story from someone that was there. So you know what? It, it's kind of neat that they're so honest about themselves. But let's let's go on. I should probably also mention this as well. Uh, you know how the, the whole point of our walk through the Gospels is, is that we're trying to take a, a sequenced or ordered walk through in, in chronological time. And guess what? It's really hard to do. This is one of those areas that's particularly difficult, so the sequence of this event this event here, it's very debatable. And now, on one hand, it, it would go great immediately before the washing of the feet, but we didn't put it there. Uh, and, and part of the reason, I mean, Jesus' follow-on talk about kingdoms and thrones and all that, I don't know, for me, that made it just a little bit weird. And, and since this is in Luke— uh, we can see that his sequence has the discussion of who will betray him leading up to this. And I don't know, you can kind of imagine how that conversation would actually go. You can sort of make sense of that. So so we chose to put it here. If you think it should go somewhere else, hooray for you, you, you do that. This is just what we're doing. And so we're going to talk about it that way. Laying that aside, Jesus is using this whole little bit here as a teaching moment. And he says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. So the them here, I mean, it is the Gentiles. He, he, he begins to speak of those who are in authority over them. And when he does so, what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the king himself, but he's also talking about those that the king has sort of put in place. You know, uh, the king has other delegated rulers, leaders, authorities, etc. So they are the ones who rule. And then who's being ruled over? Well, it's the Gentiles or, or the people or whatever you want to call it. But what's interesting is the king and, and his other delegated or appointed rulers, they are called benefactors. And it's important to see 
there's, I don't know, an irony or a sarcasm or a satire that is here. They were, these, these kings and rulers, they were almost without fail, cruel, unjust, tyrannical turds, I guess. There's one word. But they're called benefactors, as if they are the do-gooders or the kindly helpers. But then, okay, so I'm guessing, I'm guessing that while Jesus is saying this, that the disciples, the apostles, are, they're, they're easily picking up on his point. And, and, and Jesus' point is that they shouldn't be anything like that. Another way to say that is that they should actually be benefactors, do-gooders, kindly helpers. They should turn what is normal upside down. Let the older honor the younger. They need to encourage that and, and live that as an example. Let the leader live as the servant. And, and Jesus uses himself as the example. He even uh, he returns to the example of, of washing of the feet. And now, he doesn't explicitly do it. I'm saying it's kind of inferred here. But he, at the same time, he's also speaking of the upcoming completion of his mission. Again, he doesn't say it explicitly, but it's inferred. It's like, look what I've done here, washing the feet. And then, you know, he knows what he's about to do. They're going to understand that very, very soon. He was among them as one who serves. And in the same way, we must find our own life's mission in this as well, in service and and leading through service. It's good stuff, very powerful stuff. But then Jesus, he ends with a pretty incredible statement, at least it would be incredible, except that, you know, Jesus is the one saying it. He says uh, that they have proven faithful, right? They've stayed with him all this time, whatever, and well... Quick side note, Samuel, were they perfect? Definitely not. No. And we've said this before, whether we're talking about righteousness or faithfulness or loyalty or whatever, it's not strictly black and white. It's more of a gray scale. And we just need to be aiming for, you know, the the white side of that scale. We need to be pushing toward, you know, whatever you want to call it. God is light, white, purity, you know, whatever. That We need to be pushing toward that and and knowing that it's not just, hey, you're either perfect or you're not. It's not like that. Anyway, the point is, these guys, they've proven faithful, and they are going to be assigned a kingdom, at least of sorts. Maybe you could say that they're some sort of royal administrators. Uh, they're going to be giving, maybe, maybe it's something like areas or regions of rule within his kingdom. The point is, do you notice how this is just like the benefactors of the Gentile kings that he spoke of? This is the connection. They are going to all take counsel together, Jesus and these rulers, in this case specifically the apostles. They're going to take counsel together, eat together, rule together. And specifically, the apostles are going to rule over the tribes of Israel. Now, sadly, no details are given regarding the Gentiles in this specific case. But, again, we know that we are grafted in, and there will be something, I'm sure. It'll all be taken care of. But altogether, altogether, this makes their argument over who is the greatest, which, 
already just seems completely ridiculous and silly in our eyes reading it today, but it makes it even more ridiculous and silly. They are all going to rule with him. They're all going to have a special place, but greatness is defined in service, elevating others. So I don't know. It's a great teaching moment, but it's just such a horrible moment for them that makes them look bad. On one hand, this ruling sounds incredible, maybe, to us, but on the other hand, this is exactly what mankind was created to do from the very beginning. We are to participate in ruling over creation. And this is why being in his image is so important. We should be humble servants just like the apostles, just like Jesus, and ultimately just like God. Resurrection, the new covenant, you know, with Torah on the mind and heart, it's going to make this all actually work as originally intended. Now, okay, there's a lot of fuzzy, you know, as far as exactly how all this is going to look and work, whatever. God hasn't given us clear vision of everything, but it is the restoration and the redemption of all things. And no matter how much we know, this is just beautiful stuff. So anyway, there you go. Jesus teaching good lessons right there. Definitely. I personally see Jesus's response in the midst of this I don't know how you want to describe it, a moment of incorrect or selfish thinking among the disciples. The way that Jesus responds is an act of mercy, uh, in in my opinion. Like, he could have been very upset, uh, especially with how, like what you said, like how much he's been longing for this Passover meal and for his disciples to be getting into an argument over something so trivial. And he just lays it out so gently like he just reminds them like remember your call is to lower yourself and elevate others and if you continue to do that like you all were just bickering about who's going to be the greatest but all of you all of of the you know 11 who are left uh are going to be all of you are going to be elevated and brought into a place into the kingdom where you get to participate with me in ruling. And that had to have felt amazing to the disciples to to showcase it's like, oh, it's like it's not about this empire mind of competition and right. who, who is going to push the other one down in order for me to rise up. It's like we're we're all in it together. God is inviting all of humanity to participate in this and that these disciples are going they're going to get equally rewarded in the kingdom for staying with Jesus like to the end of of, of this story. Yeah, it's interesting that you say all that Samuel and and honestly, once it gets to this part of the story and you know, there may be parts where it doesn't feel as much this way and others where it feels more this way, whatever. But in my mind, when I'm imagining what Jesus is like, what he's going through, whatever, I kind of get the sense that he knows, okay, I'm pretty much out of time here. I just, it's not worth fighting and pushing so hard anymore. I'm just going to keep laying out the truth. There, I mean, this is it. 
they've got everything they've got. I'm going to be out of here in a few hours. So, you know, like you said, he he just seems kind and gentle and, you know, whatever. I think there's a, a little bit of a sense of, uh, hey, I'm not going to be able to fix this. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to say some true things and just let it go. <laughs> But whatever, we'll see. And now, it's funny that also that you say it that way, because as the story continues, I think it's, it's very uh, relevant to that. So let's get on to that. Matthew chapter 26, verses 30 to 35, we have parallels Mark chapter 14, verses 26 to 31, and Luke 22, verses 31 to 34. I'm going to read from Matthew and one little bit from Luke. So here's Matthew. And when they had sung a hymn, They went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. All right. If you're at all familiar with the story, that kind of makes you laugh a little bit. Well, whatever. Here we go. This is going over to Luke. I'm just going to read the first couple verses there. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. All right, so Jesus is pretty clear. He knows what's coming. He's telling them they're not really believing it yet, but whatever. Let's, uh, before, you know what? This is an easy one to miss. Right at the very beginning, they sang a hymn. Now, because we're talking about Passover Seder and all that, this is the fourth cup. And they are, they're reciting the final portion of the Hallel, that's Psalm 113 to 118, they, they, they've completed the meal, obviously, etc. They're singing a hymn. All this. this is the end of the meal. And then, okay, as you read it, it's like, well, they're either on the Mount of Olives or, or maybe they're only near the Mount of Olives or maybe they're only on their way to the Mount of Olives. It, it gets a little unclear uh, as we go through. Sometimes it makes it sound like it's immediate. Boom, they're there. But, you know, when, especially when we get over to John, you're going to see that they get involved in some big, long discussion, and we've got Jesus' farewell discourse. So some think that all of this happens at the table uh, before they even go, and you know, others think it happens while they walk, whatever. I'm just saying, don't get overly attached to, hey, where am I at this moment? Because it seems to be, a, a, it's a little bit flexible or elusive or something. But Jesus warns them, they're all going to fall away. And he cites Zechariah 13, 7. Now, in Zechariah, it's kind of, it's in the midst of a section describing the day of the Lord. 
Okay, that's kind of important. It's, you know, we would now think of that at like the ultimate day of the Lord is when Jesus is second coming. But anyway, in the passage, God is commanding his own sword to smite the shepherd, the man next to me. Now, interestingly, even in Judaism, this had been understood to be the Messiah. Remember, we've talked about how they thought, well, I don't know, maybe there's two Messiahs, one that suffers and one that conquers, right? Well, this is that suffering Messiah. Now, as it happens, occasionally when you're reading through Zechariah, you could be reading about a thing and all of a sudden it's like the Messiah just kind of appears in the midst of this thing. It, it, it can even feel out of place or jarring or whatever. And this is one of those cases. Uh, the Messiah, son of Joseph, just appears. Now, if you're looking at the plain text, it's a little confusing. And you know, it's often attempted. They try to relate things in the text to the contemporary time, or, or at least near the contemporary time. So they're looking for some sort of contemporary king or whatever. They haven't had a whole lot of success with this one, at least nothing, nothing that I found compelling or convincing. But that's always a really good idea to try, though. The, the text that you see often does have a very real-life and almost real-time implementation or working out, uh, but it, it also may have some sort of future aspect. Jewish scholars, Christian scholars, all of them have, they have a long history of looking at this particular passage as pointing to the Messiah. And so they're at least, you know, very, very open to this idea of a dual meaning of the text, whatever. And now Jesus, okay, he obviously sees it as pointing to himself. And so Jesus is saying that they're all going to fall away. Why? Well, because of his arrest, his trial, if you want to call it that, his crucifixion, uh, and, and you might even go further, the fact that he just takes it all. No resistance. This is going to be hard for them. And he even adds some encouragement. I don't, you know, whether it really helped or not, it must have, right? Whatever. But he tells them, I will be raised up. I will be resurrected. In fact, I'm even going to beat you guys back to Galilee. That should have been kind of encouraging, whatever, I don't know. But Peter, Samuel, do we love Peter? We do. We do. Peter is hearing none of this, and of course he declares with all sincerity, I'm sure that he was truly convinced that he was speaking truth, they might fall away but I will not. Peter even says, I will never fall away. And you've got to love his heart. More of us should be more like Peter. I'm just saying. But in Luke, and this, was, this is important, that's why I read the Luke part, Jesus tells Peter, and did you notice he used his name twice? Simon, Simon. <laughs> that is a show of affection. Right at that moment, Jesus, he is loving Peter. He tells Peter that Satan has demanded, and this is important, Satan has demanded to sift all of them like wheat. The you in that part of the text is plural. And just to say it, to sift something is to, you're kind of separating the good from the bad. 
you know, or separating the wanted things from the unwanted things. And if I mean, if you're thinking about wheat, you might think of, I don't know, things like rocks or dirt or something, whatever, uh, maybe just the chaff or, I mean, you know, whatever. The point here, now, why might Satan be sifting? Well, Satan wants to find all of the bad, weak, unwanted, whatever you want to call it, stuff, so that he can use it to accuse to tear down, to destroy. You, you might even, that might remind you a little bit of the story of Job, the way Satan was, you know, arguing, kind of arguing with God. Yeah, well, Job wouldn't be good if I did this or if I did that. But Jesus, he's, he's trying to encourage Peter that he has prayed for him. And what's interesting is at that point, the text, the you switches to being singular. He wants to sift them all. Peter, and it says, uh, Jesus tells Peter that he's prayed for him, you singular, but I'm just going to say, I'm quite certain that Jesus has prayed for them all. Uh, He's just, you know, turning the conversation to something more uh, personal. He's prayed for him so that his faith won't fail. Now, you may know the story, and you may be thinking to yourself, yeah, well, his faith is, you know, it's kind of battered and beaten and deflated and limping and bleeding. Okay, all of those things, but it won't completely fail. And he even gives him a future mission. This is how much faith Jesus has in Peter. He gives him a future mission. Once you have gotten yourself back together, and we might think of this as repentance, strengthen your brothers. Peter's strength ultimately is going to be an asset to them all. So, man, I mean, this is, this is a rough part of the text. You're all going to, you know, fall away. But he's trying to be as encouraging as he can be. It's good stuff. Uh, Real quickly, back in Matthew and Mark, Jesus tells Peter exactly how he's going to fall away. He tells him that before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And, And as we will see, Jesus is correct. But here's the interesting thing. Interesting side note. And I'm not offering this as you know, hey, this is the truth, and this is the way you have to read it. But it is really interesting. They're going to be in the city of Jerusalem when this all goes down. Peter denies him three times. And just important to know, chickens, which would include roosters, they are banned from the city. They're not allowed to be there. Now, it could be that it's just a stray rooster that's found its way into the city. That's not impossible. And it ends up making the fulfillment of Jesus's prophecy just that much more amazing. Okay, I'm good with that. But a lot of Jewish writings, and this, I just find this so interesting. It could also be that the, this actual reference, it may have been taking advantage of a colloquial phrase used for the priests. In Okay, every single day in the morning, there were lookouts. They would look for, and, and I don't know if it's exactly like, you know, the appearance of the sun when it actually, you know, the actual ball of the sun peaks over the horizon or uh, whatever, but there's a moment which they look for, and then they actually cry out from the temple that, you know, d- daylight has come. And in some of the Jewish writings, they actually refer to this as a rooster crowing. And again, I'm not saying that that has to be what's happening here, but that's a really interesting side note. It could have been that just as daylight dawned when the rooster crowed, that is the priest shouting from the temple, that's when Peter realized 
the fullness of everything that had come to pass. He had denied him three times, all that kind of stuff. Maybe, maybe not. Either way, the idea is the same, whether we're thinking about an actual rooster that somehow made it in the city, even though they were not allowed in there, or if it was the priest from the temple, whatever it is, the point is, by sunrise, Peter, you're going to be eating your words. It's kind of rough. And of course, what happened? Peter denied it. In fact, they all denied it. And boy, Samuel, how thankful are we that humans are so much more evolved today and not like Peter and these other apostles, huh? I'm glad we're past that. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all we got for today, uh, except for what you've got to bring to the table, Samuel. So lay it on us. Yeah. Um, maybe I am being too soft on Peter, but I think that Peter's later response with the denial that he's going to experience is a very natural human thing to do in terms of when the possibility of death is imminent, that (laughs) there is this fearfulness that it's almost innate within us, like humans naturally fear dying, uh, and that that could be for believers or not believers. That's why we teach children not to walk along the sides of dangerous cliff sides, and we <laughs> right. put up barriers on staircases to protect people going up and down tall places. And I think that Jesus's affection towards him probably had that in mind that he he was able to acknowledge and Jesus was able to acknowledge and take into account Peter's fervor in this moment during the Seder where he probably wasn't disbelieving Peter's allegiance but then later he's going to recognize like there's only one in this moment who's going to be able to face truly face death and walk into it despite fear and despite anxiousness of what's to come for for the sake of the many. So I I don't know if that detail adds any part to how we look at Peter in this story, but I don't know. I I, I can relate to Peter a lot in that I, I can have all the allegiance and faithfulness to God in the world, but then if I get into a moment where Peter was and my life is on the line, I don't know how I would, would respond. And and there's yeah. mercy in that, too, because if he, if he hadn't have denied, he may have had a premature death, and then his strength to encourage his brothers, you know, and establish the first century assembly right. may not have been present. So there's, there's mercy in that as well. Yeah. Imagine if they all had stuck with him right to the end, on through death. Rut-row. <laughs> There's no one to sit in the thrones and judge. Yeah, it's a lot harder for the story to spread and all that, too. Yes, it's just, see, humans, and, and I don't think this is wrong, humans have a natural affinity toward life and not death. And this is, it only makes sense. I mean, look at the big story. What is God bringing us all to? Or, you know, hopefully. E- eternal life. Many will, many will go to death, but... The draw 
is to life. And so, yeah, death is a, it's an unknown, mysterious thing. And even when you have hope, the only real true hope, you know it and you count on it. Facing death is still a challenge. Mm-hmm. Still a challenge. Yeah, we'll, we'll continue uh, to stick up for Peter. He's a good guy. Yeah, I'm going to stick up for him here right now with another tenet that came to mind. Um, I think that, uh, this idea or concept came from a Marty Solomon teaching within the Bema Discipleship podcast, but he he was talking about the patriarchs within the Old Testament, within the Torah, most of them, like Abraham... Isaac, Jacob, Joseph having chutzpah. It's like this idea of guts or bravery concerning the things with your relationship with God and pursuing his attributes on earth. And Marty said that God is much more interested in having people on his team who are willing, and this may sound a little controversial, who are willing to take risks and later like stumble fall down in that pursuit of being on god's team than someone who is sitting on the sidelines doing nothing being static and i personally see this attribute being present here with peter right now like he took he took a risk in his bravery before all these events went down and ultimately he failed at that but god (laughs) would god would much rather have people who are willing to go out and fight and have the guts to pursue righteousness than do nothing at all. Oh, I totally agree. Totally agree, especially in this this context. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Well. Got another thing, Paul. <laughs> oh, well, then, by all means, sorry. That had the air of completeness, and my bad. <laughs> this whole... The past two or three weeks where we were talking about the discrepancy between the Synoptic Gospels and the Gospel of John concerning the timeline, within this last section that we just covered in Matthew 26, where it says, uh, 26 verse 30, they after they had sung that hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Yeah. That seems to suggest that this couldn't have happened on a Sabbath because of them traveling, right? If If it is indeed that they're... Yeah, that's like another leap. one of the difficulties, yeah. 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 And and it it's so difficult to to reconcile it all. And it just seems at every turn there's a problem. And uh Well, we've already talked about it. We're not going to do it again. We're just going to keep dealing with things, just sort of accept them at their face value and 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 see where they lead us, but Yeah. Yeah, kind of crazy. Yeah, didn't bring it up to try to solve it just to address it to say that you know here's another thing that is a problem yeah (laughs) well yeah and and think about it what what's peter gonna have with him when the guard shows up guards show up and they want to arrest jesus he's gonna have a weapon on him yeah (laughs) gonna be carrying around a weapon and in fact using it you know another sabbath violation if you want to look at that yeah it's just a bunch it's crazy all right, now, anything else, Samuel? The air is officially still. Okay, all right. <laughs> then let's get out of here. Okie dokie. Oh! Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. 
be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. Until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.